Welcome to another crossover episode with Writing with Machines, a rad group of English teachers who get together to discuss technology, teaching, and composition. In this Writing with Machines conversation, my colleagues and I explore attention and how we think about our thinking. That is, we explore the question, how do experiences reading in different modalities form us as thinking, writing humans and assist in metacognition. To see more from this and other Writing with Machines discussions, check out the show notes or search Writing with Machines as one single word. Thanks for listening. All right, we're already diving into it. Um, so Catherine, you were just sharing that your sort of your writing process pre-computer was handwriting and you're just noticing that what, what I'm really gravitating towards is what you said the quality of your thinking while writing was different when you wrote by hand than on the computer. And, 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 and so I, I wonder, can we, why do you think that is? And, or, and also I, I want to ask like, this was, this was pre-computer, but now that you only write on computers, do you notice that you are getting back to that sort of deeper sort of, you know, contemplative place at all or, okay, go for it. I want to hear more. No, I really think it it dramatically um, changed thinking, right? The thinking itself, the whole thinking process is different. And I think we are wired differently when we're sitting in front of computers and a keyboard um, than we are if we're sitting in front of a pad of paper and a pen. And I think for younger people who haven't had that experience, not really, right? Because I think all younger people, I mean, pretty much all their writing has been done on in a digital space. And I don't think that they have the same experience that I had and that I could still have, but I never do because I've gotten used to the digital space too. And I, I wouldn't give it up at this point um, because for all reasons of conveniency and speed and all of that. But I don't think my thinking process it, it it's so much faster, right? Yeah. We are now in a faster moving, faster paced environment where we think differently. And I think that's one of the cool thing about Marianne Wolf's book is it's the thinking itself that changes. Yes. And I do miss the, you know, what I would do when I wrote, I would write so many things to myself in the margins and then a star here, and then another thought on another page and go back to the star and it was such an organic, evolving process, the likes of which is never repeated. And I'm not saying it's one is better or worse. I'm really not. Yeah. I'm just saying that I miss for myself the kind of thought that I put into my writing before moving into a digital space. And again, this isn't about one being better than the other. It really isn't. But when you can compare side by side yourself and your thinking in these two different spaces, um, and I think anybody who does spend time, whether it's journaling or spending the time writing, will notice there's a difference because you go so much slower, right? Yeah. And you pause so much more, right. but not in a darn it, I need to write more kind of way, right? Because if you're in front of a computer and you're pausing, it's almost like, uh, what else do I write? What, 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 what next? Or something dings or something flashes or right. Pops oh, up. Constant distractions. Yeah. Our, and, and it has, I can feel that my brain has changed. I know it has changed. And I, and I miss, I miss that experience of, of writing and, and the depth of thought. Um, 
Cool. I want to link to the text about this pause, but Daniel, I want to create some space for you to jump in because I see your head bobbing. and I know you're thinking about stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and when Catherine is, was talking, I think that what stood out to me and what was one of the... So I come. I like some of the chapters of this book, and I've talked about this before. I don't like a lot of it, and I think what you just said, Catherine, is really important in terms of why I liked your response more than the book. And because at one point you said for myself, and I think like especially in letter three of this book, there's this universalizing of experience that because um, this I I don't think because I like that move too of I'm not of the idea of not opposing one to the other yeah. because I think that's important to know in terms of like even because the sense that younger people are growing up in this digital space and that's the only reason way they've like read and written but like from my own experiences like I grew up around older people that also didn't do much reading and writing and a lot of the time their first experience is reading and writing are now in digital spaces and they're actually reading and writing because it's instantaneously it's there and they can they're on social media now and so they're they're writing the, uh, in that way and so it's almost this sense that the opposition is false because a lot of people just weren't reading and writing before and now are so i think in terms of cognitive science that's kind of hard because who are you comparing what to in the past versus the present um and so even like some of the uh i just have a few things marked in the book one is uh in on page 43 the act of reading is a special place in which human beings are freed from themselves to pass over to others etc and that like idea that a lot of people were doing this empathetically while reading like later she talks in in the margins i mentioned this i think when we talked about the book in the meetings a few months ago, but um, uh, she talks about Hemingway and reading Hemingway and like how, how that experience and the, the margins I have, because she's like how wonderful an experience that is and people aren't experiencing that anymore. And I say, I have do racists not read Hemingway? And this idea that we're inherently passing over to some empathetic form of being because these texts existed and were read before, but who was reading them was very narrow and it's not necessarily true that we're getting some inherent thing about the human condition from, because she talks a lot later too about, um, there has been a, begun an unanticipated decline of empathy among our young people. A lot of old people don't have empathy either. And so it's this kind of universalizing and oppositional, the past was better because there was more empathy and now we don't have it, which is strange to me given from where I'm coming from, where I'm now seeing a lot of my like older relatives for the first time being part of public discourse and reading public discourse and not coming at it with any sort of, sort of empathy or, or past experience in terms of what reading and writing can be. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I, I agree that we should not universalize experience and make these broad sweeping generalizations. But I guess what I think she has pegged well is the ways in which thought is different. Um, I'm not saying, and again, I don't want to say one is better or, or that, you know, some, I mean, some people weren't reading and writing a lot of before, but there were a lot of people that did a lot. And, and there were a lot of letter writers 
uh, certainly not everybody, but there were a lot of people who had really intense and deep conversations with one another long distance through true letter writing, long letters, 10 page, 15 page letters, handwritten. That is, that is lost. And, and Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, that it's better, better or worse to have that, but it is, I think, important as society evolves, not to say, not to create some binary at the, you know, better and worse, because it's not, that's not how it is. But there is something lost as we move forward, right? There is something lost. Now, we say lost because it was there before in a way that it isn't now. Um, That doesn't mean there aren't things gained, right? So that if you were looking backwards from from now towards it, something would be lost were we to move backwards, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that sense of loss could go either way. Um, But I do think it's important to keep in mind the things that were of real value to many people in the past Mm. and how do we regain some of the things that were lost um, but in a way that works with our society today and some of those things may never come back I don't think long letter writing and discourse is ever coming back it's just not we have it's too easy for us to text each other, call each other, you know, it's just, it's a, that is a lost art, but it is really cool to go back and read like compendiums of old letter writers, you know, but the kinds of discourses people used to have through letters is wonderful, you know, and it's really neat. We're never going there again. And it's not like that was the golden age where everything was better. I'm absolutely not saying that at all. Um, But we can still be, you know, at least appreciate what was there that we no longer have. And how Mm -hmm. can we incorporate some of the value that we got out of those things into our lives today? Is there a way or is there not a way? Um, And I think a lot of people, like you say, were not really reading and writing. But the kind of reading and writing that was done was different. It was different. And um, and it's changed for me. Our brains are different, right? My brain has changed since I have this on me all the time. My brain has changed. It's not just that my habits have changed. My thinking, my patterns of thought have changed along with the rest of the world. Right. And I, I don't think it's about making one good and one bad. It's just recognizing the ways in which our thinking shifts. To me, it's not about, you know, talking about, oh, the old days were better. It's not, I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying, wow, how our brains have shifted, how our thinking has shifted. We need to sort of develop an awareness of that and an understanding of that so that we can sort of work with it and just remember that thinking itself is changing. And I think that's important. Yeah. Um, so hey Shelly. Hey Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you entered all, I was in the middle of my, my room. Yeah. So and, okay, and essentially I, I could sense it. Good, perfect, cool. Okay. 
I think what we're kind of talking about now is a few things. So uh, Marianne Wolf's tendency to to imply hierarchies around these different mediums she's, she's analyzing and the way they change the brain. I, I do think that that's a thing in this book. Yeah. But, but um, um, Catherine, what I also hear us really kind of excited about is thinking about what we might call like the affordances and the constraints of different mediums and mm-hmm. how not necessarily greater or less than just different across for different reasons. And that each one does shape our brains and, and our, and, and our habits uh, uniquely. Right. Um, and so one thing we could, we don't have to go here yet, but I think we might just say about that is if we're inclusive of many mediums with many affordances and constraints, then we shape our brain sort of broadly and, and dynamically rather than just sitting in one and being shaped by one. So I'll put you made me think of something that I hadn't really thought of before. So I got kind of excited and want to jump in before I lost the thought because <laughs> changing brains. Um, but yeah, with a really great analogy would be to talk about being uh, bilingual, trilingual, quadrilingual, yes. multilingual, right? Yes. yes. That yes. Our brains think differently in different languages. It's not just the that the words are put into different words in different languages, the thinking itself changes depending yes. on the language that we speak. And we only really and truly experience that when we learn more than one language and really inhabit that language. That's but anybody that speaks multi is multilingual has that experience of the thoughts themselves are different. And yes. there's a really wonderful podcast that Curry might have heard because there's much of a podcast junkie as I am where they talk about how in uh, certain Maori cultures, there is no such thing as right and left because right. they think in terms of everything is North, South, East, West, everything. So the side of your body changes depending on the directionality in which you're sitting. And that's how their brains perceive their, their bodies. Right. They don't have a left and right side to their body. And yeah. so that that's a perfect example of how language and culture changes the thinking itself because you and I can't think in terms of I don't know which way is north and I'm sitting at home where I am all the time I have no clue right um so I don't have a north side of my body right now and it doesn't exist in in my way of thinking and so if we think of this as not you know it's not like one way is better there's no such thing as better or worse when we're talking about thinking in different languages no one language isn't better than another but it's fascinating to think about how the ways in which we think differently in different languages and to really get into how language shapes our thinking itself. Right. Because I think too often we we sort of glaze over the differences as if when you translate work, it's just putting it into that language. No, the meaning of the text changes with every translation. It is not the same text once you translate into a different, no matter how good the translation, it is right. not the same text. Totally. Yeah. And so I've, I've heard, so, um, so bilingual, trilingual, and I'm hearing linguists and, 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 and others like Marianne Wolf using uh, biliterate, triliterate. And this is the sort of a way of, so bilingual, I speak many languages, biliterate, triliterate, I read or consume many mediums, right? And my brain is, is, is fluent in that particular sort of text, textuality, whether that be 
writing, print, video games, Twitter, whatever that might be, right? Um, so, so I just want to throw one more anchor point, and then we'll just go everywhere. Uh, and and because I feel like what we're also getting to, and and what I feel like is really um, um, valuable about these two chapters that we're reading in Marianne Wolf's book is this kind of notion of cognitive patience. She uses this phrase or um, contemplative practice, right? And earlier, Catherine, you were talking about the pauses. So I'm writing and I pause or I'm reading and something just happened and I pause or I'm just still doing a thing, but my mind has kind of paused that even if I'm still consuming it and, and something else is happening. So I just want to read a quick passage. We'll go wherever we go. So uh, this is on page 67. Cognitively and psychologically, this pause is not quiet or static time. It is an intensely active moment that can lead us even deeper into insights from the text or beyond them. As we sift past perceptions, feelings, and thoughts in pursuit of what the psychologist William James thought of, and Philip Davis describes as that invisible generative place, the invisible presence of mind behind, within, and between its words, right? And it's that sort of electric either what I'm reading is making me think, or the description of a place has caused the words to disappear and I'm just in it. Or I think even when I'm writing, I get into that contemplative place where I'm not even aware of the keyboard anymore and not necessarily what's happening on the screen, but I'm just in that generative place. And it has to do with something like, like, like the, the, the words, the technology, the medium, it, it's, and how my brain has been shaped or is shaping those things, right? Okay, so where do we want to go from there? <laughs> I'll just say too, because this connects to to the idea of like being multilingual and things like that too, in relation to this, because I think also like thinking about that contemplation as um, like one, again, there's this sense that um, uh, the value of reading in that contemplation, which yes, but again, a lot of people, even in the past, like looking at reading newspapers or whatever, aren't necessarily using it as a similarly contemplative experience, but also like thinking about that as inherently tied to text. So I think like, like, um, and I have to see if she mentions him, but Marianne Wolf is of course living in like a, a post Walter Benjamin world where yes, it's contemplation through the, through not reading text in that way that she's talking about reading text or like yes. a Roland Barthes, a post Roland Barthes world. Yes. And I was thinking, so I was listening to a podcast yesterday that's kind of, it's a podcast on video games, but um, the two people that are the hosts, one works in the video game industry now, but they both come from academic um, backgrounds. And um, they were talking about this game Chia, which I hadn't heard of before. So I'm really ha happy uh, that I was listening to this because apparently it's a game about it's a uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild like game um, about New Caledonia, um, which is a French colony, um, island country, and um, uses the many languages in, that are spoken in French Caledonia. And the whole process of that game is you're encountering sort of these it's not a global narrative you're encountering like local concerns and the whole point of the game is to like deal with local concerns and you're learning you're like interacting with the languages of that culture and even i guess gift giving practices that they have within that culture those cultures 
and but the can but like the text and everything else part of the experience is the contemplative experience of just moving through the landscape the digital landscape and it's not actually new caledonia that's like in the game it's like a fictionalized version of it um but inspired by and i think of those types of experiences and even like thinking about that colonial history again going to this idea of contemplation and text versus oral culture and other ways of thinking and how like by unrooting ourselves from the idea that it's it's text that we're basing our thought and, and things on that like we come to different practices and experiences of space and and culture that I think are again what Catherine was saying about the like positioning all of these things together that I don't think like in the way Marion Wolf does it at least in these early chapters it's all about no reading text is a special place that's only where contemplation can happen that's only yeah. where we can have empathy to pass over to other people but as you were saying curry with the by by uh by literate and triliterate stuff i think in the end she kind of gets there um right. but i just wish it wasn't at the end of this book i wish she was at the beginning <laughs> totally yeah and i so that example of that game there's affordances in that game that that have those pauses that have those like generative pauses right where like i could suddenly just be thinking about i'm connecting all of these dots just about the space like what colonialism means what these different languages are doing in this space how i'm exploring it and have agency how others in the game don't have that agency right there's a lot in that textuality that that experience that can get me to cool generative contemplative places right in my brain Cool. So, so what do we think? And I just want to, so let me just connect some dots and, and let's think also about our students a little bit. Um, I like, so Catherine, we were talking about handwriting earlier and letter writing specifically. I actually, through high school, I wrote lots of letters to friends. I did lots of traveling and, and, and met friends that I didn't go to high school with, but really, they're really close to me. So we wrote letters. And I remember it was kind of weird then. This is in the 90s. And I didn't know lots of people who were writing letters. And we were kind of self-aware. We're like, we're writing letters. Isn't that silly? But we really, <laughs> there was value in it, right? Um, I reconnected with one of those friends recently and sent them a letter. And I'm like, we should start this again. They sent me a letter back. And for six months, that letter's just been sitting on my desk. And we finally said, we really want to connect. Let's just email. Because at this point, I just don't like, it's just not part of my habits, right? It's not part of my, you know? Um, and so, so, I, but at the same time, so I want to think about our students. So, uh, you know, I might have anxiety about them clacking on a keyboard or versus thumbs on a screen. I might have anxiety about, do they sit with a whole chapter and, and just turn all the distractions off and sit with that chapter and then put it down and think about it and maybe even pick it up and reread it versus they came to class and as a class, we put a bunch of quotes on the board and we posted that into Canvas and some students never read the chapter and they're just scanning those quotes we put in, that's now an image and they're going to write the essay now. I might have anxiety about that. So I just want to open this up a little bit. Can we think about maybe new forms, emerging forms, emerging habits, and, and, and not put them in a hierarchy, 
hierarchy, but just as compositionists, as teachers, like what are the affordances and what are the constraints of new, like digital uh, writing, digital reading, and 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 what about these new forms might get them to these contemplative places or or what, what insights can we share around this topic? Well, I mean, I know there's been research done on digital writing, like digital, digital reading, like a lot of it. Um, and a lot of self-reporting, particularly from college students, and that they don't get any sort of depth out of reading digitally, just like across the board, very large percentages. Um, and you have students who like, it does work for them, but like the majority of them, they're just like, they, it's very like a superficial engagement with the text and thinking about different reading practices. If like scrolling and scanning is like the reading practice for reading online, then that's sort of like how to build different ones when you're like still reading online. Um, and like the medium doesn't change necessarily. I think is a challenge for students. Um, I mean, a challenge for everyone, a challenge for me. I read lots of stuff that I'm like interested in, but right at some point it's like, am I interested enough to like keep actually reading or am I just like gonna close and move on? Um, I like a lot of like paleontology, archeology span stuff. And so I'm like, you know, always reading about whatever new discovery and like space with all the, you know, the James, um, whatever new telescope right so i'm reading all of that stuff constantly but it's like within those articles like i'll hit a point and it's like i keep reading or it's like no i'm done right and and one thing i find interesting with that is um because i think like to me too this dilemma is i think a lot of students even print text are just skimming it um uh and are looking for i mean when they latch onto something meaningful they'll they'll work with it but they're skimming it but i think one like challenge that i have found in that is that this like reading digitally and this is another thing i i think like wolf it would be interesting to hear wolf's perspective on, on this is that this idea of like reading print text or reading digital text is really not the dilemma our students are facing because most of them are opting out of both of those and are listening to audiobooks and listening right. to it on YouTube um, and things like that. And to the, to the point that, so I'm taking a class, an African-American history class this semester, and the instructor is kind of old school. But one thing I found interesting is that she's assigning like Frederick Douglass and, and, and things like that. But she, basically, she's encouraging everyone to listen to it read on YouTube rather than actually read it. Because she's like, it's basically, it's too difficult for you to understand if you're reading it. Like, that's not quite what she says, but that's kind of the tone of what you, so just listen to it and you'll probably get more out of it. Yeah. Um, and, but that's interesting to me because with like, I'm okay with podcasts, but I don't like listening to podcasts that I really want to, like I'd rather read the information for that reason because I don't absorb it as much. But then maybe I'm kind of on the cusp and I think about like students' experiences of that and their the convenience of listening, but are maybe they are just more auditory and that helps them retain information now. Um, and it's, so it's almost not, because uh, I, I just sent like I myself, like digital texts don't work as well as print texts um, for the most part, um, but we're kind of even beyond that dilemma at this point. And it's, an, it's, it's this, 
as with a lot of students and sort of people that have to work. And, and I think this is why Wolf's ideas about the past are super nostalgic and problematic in terms of working class people. It's like that leisure of being able to do it that way versus no, I need to do all these other things at the same time. So listening to it will be a more convenient experience. Yep. Yeah, I can say so now I choose with my English 100, we read Trevor Noah, uh, Born a Crime. I don't know if you guys, any of you have read that. It's a really, really fun book, really great to read. But one of the things that, that I like about it is that even though it does cost some money, is that you can um, listen to it on Audible if you prefer. And I always tell them that. I said, you are welcome to listen to it. So whichever works for you. And a lot of them tell me they like to listen and read at the same time. I ask them to have the book so that they can, we can go back to passages together in the classroom. Um, but I don't mind if they just listen to it. And one of the reasons I particularly like using this book for that is that Trevor Noah reads his own text. So you hear it in his voice, his right. inflection. So I don't feel like anything is lost. Right. Um, to me, it is a different experience, but it's equally valuable. I don't think one is better than the other. I love listening to him read his own book. And I've read, I've listened to the whole thing like three times and read it like three times. So um, I, I've enjoyed this book in both mediums. And I do like choosing for students texts where they can have that choice. Um, because if they are only able to listen while they drive or whatever, I, I want to make that possible and available to them rather than just not having time to look at it at all. Um, and I don't, and I think if we choose carefully, we don't necessarily have to lose anything in that process. It may somewhat limit our options. And again, one of the problems with that is it costs money to get a book on Audible. Um, the free versions of uh, texts that are read are not always as good or, you know, or there's interrupted with ads or whatever. So, uh, so that's, so I always just say, it's not, you don't have to listen to it, but it's, it's there if that's something you don't mind purchasing. Um, so anyway, and, and usually they purchase a book too. So, you know, it's, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I, I appreciate what Daniel's saying is like, well, so so what what mediums can we make it ha we've gone beyond that question I, I really do think we have gone beyond the question of reading in print versus reading digitally now it's a question of reading versus other ways of sharing information with one another and ideas with one another because obviously the written word is not the only way to do that Hey, this is Jake. I'm here. I'm driving. Sorry. Thanks for sorry for joining a little late. And this is a really rich conversation. I'm stoked to be here. Um, you've made me thought think about a lot. Like in terms of the audio um, text, I I want my students to at least listen to it, then not to do any of it, right? Not to read at all. One thing that I I'm concerned about, and just basing this on my own audio um, book experiences is I'm less likely to engage in that contemplative process that I am when I read because I'm unable to pause. Yeah. So like, I don't like when I'm reading, listening to a book, I don't usually pause it, think for a while and then start the start, start it playing again. Instead, I'm like thinking about it, but the book keeps moving ahead. So if I don't, I, kind of, I feel like I have to also kind of keep pace, you know what I'm yeah. saying? 
And then the other thing is about the different media styles. I think you're all right when saying that that ship has kind of sailed. But I wonder how much I'm conditioned and my students are conditioned in terms of the experience of the way that I read on my laptop or on, especially on my phone, where I'm, I have the tendency to scroll and like, you know, kind of skim through different paragraphs. Is that a different experience than when I look at when I'm handed a, a, te- a book, a physical book? I don't usually skip three or four pages, start reading a paragraph there, skip three or four pages, read, start reading a paragraph there in a much different way than I experience reading on, you know, the, the digital types. Totally. That's so interesting. So, so when you're reading your own thinking can distract from the book itself, meaning like it absorbs you, 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 you kind of like you go into your own thinking and, and you, and if you realize your eyes have kept going, you can just jump back and, and pick up where you, you laughed were really pay, last were paying attention. But when you're listening the book actually distracts you from your own thinking because you have that generative moment of, holy shit, that's, but then you're like, I got to pay attention or I'm going to miss what's happening next. Right. And so that, that audio form, it again, not better, not worse, but that's, that's what it's uh, that's its impact. Right. That's it's sort of like, that's the affordances of it. It's constraints. Right. Um, Yeah. That's super interesting take. I also think, so think about this too, just as compositionists, and, and asking our students and giving them the choice, this medium or that mo- medium, I'm also uh, uh, mindful of, okay, if what I'm ultimately wanting them to do is engage with text directly, what forms of that am I going to accept in their writing or privilege in their writing over others? Meaning if I really want them grappling directly with quotes, but I've also said, you could only listen to this, that's fine. That that actually, I think, disadvantages that student because the listening move doesn't afford sort of the annotation st- skills that, that I teach to grab those quotes or to, to observe those quotes or just have them at the ready, right? Um, on the other hand, just to kind of extend this a little bit, problematize, the digital ebook is really good for grabbing quotes, but it, because of the search function, I can just be like, search the word whatever, and you'll get all the quotes. But that becomes really distracting from that deeper, like uh, 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 immersive or inference sort of mode of reading, right? Because I'm really just skimming. I'm just going for the information that I need to input into this paragraph form that my teacher wants me to do, right? And so, I don't know, like, do we want to, those are interesting problems. Again, there's no like perfect, this is the best way for them to read or consume text to then do the essay stuff. Well, I think that's like the the issue is like having two entirely different issues and discussions and like squishing them together. Like, do we care about deep reading or do we care about writing? Because those are like, if we're like investing in the reading and the reading is like the actual purpose and what we want students to get out of it, then like the writing's not a part of the conversation, right? right? And like grabbing quotes doesn't matter, right? It's just like conversation, ideas, whatever's like happening in our students' heads um, as like what we're valuing. But then when like the writing comes in and it's like, no, 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 you can't read that way. You have to read this way instead. And so we're asking for like very different things to happen. And so like if reading is what we value, then we have to like talk about it separate from writing because you can't really like embrace it the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really great. And, And another thing is I think just like, and I think this has to happen in English composition more generally, but understanding a class is a, a bounded space where 
there has to be buy-in, but also there doesn't have to be. Like not everyone has to like every text that is assigned or they were meant to experience. And some people will skim and then some people will leave the classroom and read something that they really enjoy that they're just doing on their own time. Um, and that's why like, I think that's why I've gone more, I'm trying to rein it back, but more and more towards choice, uh, but not giving overwhelming choice because like, in my English 201, they have a lot of different choices of where to go. And one is like manga and graphic novels. And so in the past, I've just like assigned novel novels and a lot of students just, they, they're not there and they, they're not interested in that particular text or whatever. But now I have a, a student. So one of the novel or if graphic novel or manga that I've allowed is Vinland Saga. And I have a student yesterday, he, um, he's a pretty good student, but kind of quiet, sits in the back type of student. And he came to me after class for Vinland Saga, they have to, if they choose that, they have to read the first volume, which is like 500 pages, and there's like 10 volumes. And he came up and he, he was like, well, is it okay if I read more than one volume? And so, and that to me was, okay, you're getting, and then he talked about the, the anime and we were talking about all these other connections he was making for visual texts and, and all of this stuff. And that text, the Vinland Saga manga is based off of a Viking document from like the 10th century. And so there's all of these like things that are happening all at once because he's invested and there. And I think sometimes we ask too much of students when we, when we limit choice. And I think it's okay to limit choice to one or two things maybe, but with the assumption, I think that that's not gonna be super exciting to all students and some may just end up skimming. And but then when they're outside of the boundaries of our class, they're probably reading things they are interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and that if it's and I think that that what Shelley is talking about is important because then it's like, well, then what do if if they're not fully invested in the reading of this, like, what do we want to get out of this? Do we want to then invest them in the writing of it or invest them in like trying to expand them in terms of exploring text a little bit more and getting out of your comfort zone and like making those strategic decisions um, at that point that I think are important. And I think those are good lessons if we do, but if we do limit choices, those have to be lessons that are on the, are in the foreground of our mind too. Yeah. And so, and I, okay, so, and, and, and I'm realizing um, when, when I assign an essay that requires a certain kind of demonstration of a reading experience, so uh, I'm putting quotes in this, whatever, I'm really pre even if I give them choices about what it is they're going to engage with, if that's the output, the output, right, that outcome tends to dominate all the things, right? It, it can for a student whose time is is an economy whose labor is an economy who has to make decisions about where to do this and where to do that um if my goal my sort of in my heart as a reader is i want you to have experiences with inference i want you to have experiences with immersion i want you to have experiences with empathy but i want you to write an essay about it like i've kind of like compromised that initial value of reading right i've turned it into a distraction so this, and you mentioned Walter Benjamin earlier. She does reference Walter Benjamin on uh, page 74. <laughs> yeah, and then I went and looked and I was like, and there are moments when this happens. I don't like her interpretation of him. I so. know, I know, I know. There are a lot better pieces of him that she could have used that would have like, done some really great work with her argument. 
And Walter Benjamin's so perfect for this moment, especially because the larger thing we're talking about in the series is ChatGPT. And so let's just let's just dig in a little bit. Like let's 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 expand upon Wolf's gesture towards Benjamin just for a second. Benjamin is thinking about the the what what is happening to art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And what we're doing is we're thinking about what is happening to writing in the age of you know artificial reproduction of forms, right? And so it's a really interesting kind of parallel moment. And one of the things, I'll just start here. We can go here, but we can go wherever we want. One of the things that Benjamin observes is art, as it was sort of practiced, was intended to have a place. It was tended to have a kind of relationship to it, such that when you entered the room where the art was put on the wall, like that's originally where the artist knew it was going to go. So there was something about the lighting. There was something about the room. There was something about who was in there with you in the room that you couldn't help but be absorbed by this piece because of all the aura of it, the placement of it, the whole everything about it. And, and the second you can reproduce it and put it anywhere, the reader, the consumer now absorbed it like it came into my mind and I determined its meaning. There's so many cool things about that, either one. But it does make me think like the difference between going to the theater to watch a movie or watching the movie on Netflix in my room, right? Like there's something about the place, the who's in there with me, the practices that just uh, like are, you know, I assume about the theater versus my living room that we now have these different relationships to text. So that's one leaping off point. I don't know what Shelly, what do you think about when you and then Daniel, what do you think about with where where she should have gone with Benjamin and, and these topics? Do you have thoughts, Shelly? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I had lots of thoughts when I first read it. Um because it was connected to that like idea of the like reproduction of um art and this question of like what gets lost and connected to that idea of like reading and different mediums and it like changing the relationship right as to who has control whether it's like the artists right the producers of the work um that space versus the reader having control viewer um of that yes. experience yes. um and changing that experience and with reading like the thing about it is like that like experience has always been like artificially created to start with, like mm -hmm. even print text and like teaching kids how to read. Um, it's going to be like entirely different, right? So I had like the uh, third grade teacher was like coming from lunch and like sit on the mat, like you sit on the floor when you read and like spray this like apple smelling perfume stuff in the air and like had the lights dimmed and like reading was this like relaxing yeah. peaceful it was to calm everyone down from lunchtime right like oh. it had a purpose but like it set like an entirely different tone for reading and like yeah. what you do like these practices that go along that create this like entire experience that like 30 some years later I still remember vividly um and but like not everybody gets that right and so what does like reading actually look like when you create that like pleasurable reading experience versus like staring at the you clock and like trying to push through and like what that looks like and that's just like print text alone by itself without like engaging any of these other things yeah yeah and, and that's why when i brought up benjamin earlier too i brought up bart 
in terms of like mythologies and and like reading things that aren't these ty types of texts because of that like the pleasurableness of it and so like benjamin in the arcades like this so because she's almost like she's suggesting that what he's saying is that that experience is only in the present it doesn't mean anything and uh but like this idea that the play the spaces like the cultural and social reading that happens in those spaces or whatever or like uh one thing so some of my students in 202 honors ha are tackling uh uh roland Barthes mythologies it's the first time i've actually had students choose that text um and like they were they were obsessed with his chapter on laundry detergent and like reading laundry detergent um and like they're finding a ton of pleasure about re reading about that and they're like oh yeah i've never and so now they're reflecting on their own process of like reading those like artifacts and i think that's sort of like in her definition of reading what's missing and why she kind of misses the point of Benjamin to me because he's all about reading but again not reading the things she's saying that are being read I think around that page she also says that like people these days are not reading Darwin and Freud anymore and I was like who in my life in the past read Darwin and Freud um and so and so just that like missing of what reading is and I also think like going back to, to some of these conversations in terms of like what's read and where and how and going to the theater and museum, like there is this um, Frankfurt School thing that's happening with Wolf that really annoys me in terms of, well, the masses have access now and ah, and, and that too is sort of like that experience of going to a museum, you have to be in that location you have to have the money to do to be able to it you have to have the time um to travel there etc um and like same thing now with theater experiences and always but especially now they're getting expensive yeah. and uh streaming ah it's but it like it gives access in a way and there's it's a crossroads because it's like the accessibility is important and now more people have access to those ideas and information, but they're also like more consumed, people are more consumed by those things now. And like thinking about the past, like what if there was a situation where like novels were easier to access and more universally accessible, would people be freaking out the people like they were already, but even more so uh, people are spending too much time with this and it's ruining our minds yeah. because now the masses have access to it. Pulp novels, et cetera, created right. graphic novels. They created these same conversations. Yeah. And so there's this particular thing that seems to be being idealized, but like, in Benjamin's time and stuff like that, that's when pulp novels are big. But she never mentions like pulp right. novel readers. No. <laughs> I, I feel like this is taking us kind of full circle here because as community college educators, it, it, it is our ambition to be that open, open uh, um, access institution, right? So the masses come, come hang out. And and I want to meet us where we're at. I don't want to take us to, we're all going to go to a theater because that's the only place you can really see a film. And right. And I don't, I don't want to take them to a printed novel because that's the only place you can really read. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, I do want them to have these generative experiences with inference and empathy and immersion and agency their own agency as readers or like uh, watchers or listeners or whatever it is. And so 
for me, I'm super challenged by how do my assignments facilitate that kind of relationship to and experiences with texts that all my students can grow in and and go deeper in and they're based on their own goals for being a video game player, a pulp novel reader, a whatever it is, right? Does that make sense? Like that's a real challenge for us, especially because these, and that's kind of, again, the focus of this series, these technologies are, are, are either being introduced new at a, such a rapid pace or the technologies themselves are kind of um, becoming much, much more dynamic and nuanced across how we, how we access content. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily want to say like, here's what we do to annotate a video game, but like, what do we think about this? Like how, like what problem, I don't know, like, like, do we want to pick up on that at all? Like, what do we, how do we encourage our students to go deep and, and really turn their brains on, be shaped in cool ways by these things? Let me say it that way. What are we doing? Well, I think like part of this like conversation that we've been having has to do with like this idea of necessity, like, and that connected to relevance, right? So if you like go back to like letter writing, those like big long, long letters, like that was out of necessity, right? Like there isn't the need for that form anymore. Right. And right. like the dyingness of it, um, your attempt to do it and like write the letter sister for six months. Um, and so like thinking about that, like with our students, right? So like when they're in our classes and we're like asking them to do things that like we think have value, right? Like what value do they think that these things have right like how do they see these things fitting in their lives yeah. um because i think that's like a big big issue right like if we're trying to like teach students to do like some type of writing writing in specific forms and they're just like when am i ever going to like do this or need this like this doesn't do anything for my life right now and i mean there's a lot of our students who are already working connected to their fields in some way and so there's like this very like large awareness of like what is going to be useful for them. Um, and I mean, questioning like the writing that happens outside of those like workspaces, like what writing is that, that like mm -hmm. would also be beneficial. Um, it's just like something to think about, right? I mean, and connected to technology, right? So like your friend writing letters, writing emails, like my best friends in Norway and we have like direct messaging is what we do. And if somebody went in there and like tried to read that, they would have no idea what was going on because it's so fragmented. Yes. But it goes back to like, we remember like 10 years ago when XYZ happened and I can just like have this like yeah. little piece and I know like where her mind is and she'll get it. And like, I don't have to like explain it. I'm not like, I wonder what she's been doing these past like month. And I'm going to write this long letter and I have to like, make sure she remembers, but it's like, I already know where she's at. Right. right? So it's like, what is necessary and what's not. And so like what that looks like. Right. I, I really, so that's <laughs> two things. So like the, the book that collects the letters of John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson Versus the book that collects Shelley's text with her Norwegian friend. <laughs> That's just a fun thought. Um, but I really like I, I, Shelley that the assignment in my English 100 class that asks, what value did this fill in the blank audio print ebook have in your life? And they can talk about its content. They can talk about its arguments. They can also talk about 
the quality, the intimate experience of hearing the voice, the embodied sort of expression of the author, or the cool sort of use of punctuation in the text form, the textures of it there, the textures of it there. They can talk about their own sort of driving and how this helped the commute go back, go faster and, and be more enjoyable that, you know, that, and this is just a different way for us to think about the essay and, and what we are asking from our students as readers when we ask them to share what was it that you got from this book or this text or whatever it is. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I find that more and more, you know, I mean, it used to be I really wanted my students to read books because I got so much out of reading books, right? But a lot of that was, you know, well, that's what I got out of it. And I want you to get out of it. Well, maybe that's not what they're going to get out of it. But that mean, doesn't mean they're not having really valuable experiences just in different modes. And so I'm backing off more and more from insisting that students read whole books because most of them, that's just not what they do anymore. And like you're all saying, it's like if they're not going to find value in that, I can't force that value on them. So it's really much more about helping them find what they do find value in. Where will they find value? What can I expose them to that will be exciting to them, that will inspire new thinking or activities? And maybe reading books is not that, right? Um, but that doesn't mean there's not really valuable things. Um, and, and there still would be reading, of course, but not necessarily whole books, because I really was a big believer in you gotta read the whole, you gotta read a book. Well, maybe, maybe you don't. <laughs> Like, I love reading books, but that doesn't mean everybody's going to love reading books. And so I am, you know, more and more hesitant to insist upon reading whole books. But that's for me, that's why I have the audio book and that, but we still have the text in front of us when we're in class. So we can still look at the quotes and discuss, but we could look at just one chapter or even just one page and talk about that. And we don't have to talk about it in terms of the whole book. We can talk about it in terms of this one passage yes. and that might be more likely to feel valuable to them because then we can have a really distinct discussion about this one thing that he's saying right here. And then they get excited about that, but right. they might not get excited about the whole book. Right. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. And linking like the linking, the things that are read to like targeted to students, like to specific students and and what they feel they need. So for instance, like, and that's like that, my English 202 philosophy in a lot of ways is like this idea of reading that a lot of students aren't reading traditional in a way, but but thinking of reading beyond the Marian, Marian Wolf way in terms of a lot of different texts, like whether regardless of discipline most students are engaging with film video games or television or music in some way um, and what can we bring to that and so through that i often target so for instance like i just have a small um document based off of discipline where like medical humanities like i have a lot of med students and students going into medicine and, and nursing and stuff and so i have a medical humanities textbook and there's students that a lot of them are students that don't read much but i just sort of suggest that as the text they're engaging with to some degree and they get a lot of out, out of that one because it's discipline specific to them but also like that textbook goes in a lot of different directions so it thinks about like 
reading of medical documents, but it also thinks about reading of the doctor-patient relationship. And it thinks about how we read and analyze film representations and of doctors. Um, and so then they're linked to a lot of different textualities and literacies through what they do find meaningful and the directions they're going in. And I've had from that, like one student did an amazing essay about medicine in video games and why he, like how healing is often this magical thing and how doctors aren't represented well as a result. And that human connection between doctors and patients does not come through in video games and in real life often. And he was thinking about how to, how to use video games to train doctors to be more empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, through thinking at a discipline level and reading something that was actually mm -hmm. meaningful, but that connected to a lot of uh, the text that he's actually engaging with uh, beyond that too, which is a hard thing. I've, and I've talked to, uh, to sort of gauge sometimes. I've talked about a student last semester who was like, well, I don't watch television. I don't watch film. I don't play video games. So it's like, well, what do you do? Oh, I watch sports. So then he wrote a wonderful essay about analyzing the male gaze in sports. Nice. <laughs> cool. Well, um, we're at time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna pause us and and just also just report quickly that the next time we meet and talk is April 26th, um, and we're gonna stay with Marianne Wolf's book and and really dive into this thinking about biliterate brains and and maybe we in that conversation can think also. Um, about skill sets and and as teachers, what are these skill sets specifically that we want our students to bring to these texts, develop in our classes, grow over the course of the semester? Um, but of course, we can go all all the different places as well. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Everyone. Bye.